morning. My name's Jeremy Holdsworth. I'm an elder here, and I have the privilege of reading scripture this morning. And we have two passages in 1 John, chapters 3 and 4. So, uh, page 1022 in the Pew Bible, the Blue Bible. Let's stand. And the first passage is going to be 1 John 3, 11 through 18. And I'll read that. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Then in chapter 4, Uh, Verse 7 through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to reflect on God's word. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joseph Ray. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Pray with me, if you would. Lord God, we have the incredible privilege today of getting to study these texts about your love for us, that you are love. That's an incredible statement. And you saving us, you bringing us into yourself, is you reconciling us to yourself through love, through the love of giving your son, Jesus, for our sake. And so we pray today that we could see the beauty and the magnitude of that love in a way that, like John says, it's supposed to transform us in a way that changes our hearts so that we become loving like you are loving because we know the God who is love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the year 362, the Roman emperor who is now known as Julian the Apostate, that's not a name he gave himself, but he was trying to re-paganize the empire after it was converting to Christianity. So it wasn't officially Christian yet, but a growing number of people had become Christians, and the last two emperors had been Christian or Christian-ish. And he's trying to sort of turn back that tide and turn back the clock. Um, But he was finding it difficult. And we have a letter that he wrote in that year, 362, to a pagan high priest kind of complaining about the challenges he was facing. 
And this is one of the things that he said. He wrote this. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, that's his word for Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So in other words, he was complaining that the Roman Empire had nothing that we would call social services today. That just simply didn't exist. You were either cared for by your immediate family or no one. You were utterly on your own. But he said these Christians, they're not just caring for their own poor. They're caring for ours as well. That they have this excess of abundance of concern for others that's spilling out beyond their own walls into the lives of other people. Because Roman society in that day was incredibly rigidly stratified. And so you sort of, there were values of taking care of your immediate family, and maybe you might help out a peer who had gotten in trouble kind of of their own accord, but especially helping someone in like a different social class or a different family, no dice, no way, no how. That just, that wasn't a value that they had. But this Christian group uh, that was growing an influence in the empire and sort of, you know, tearing it apart, leading it in a wrong direction, as he understood it, um, for all the things that they were hated for, for refusing to support kind of the Roman empire and Roman religion, for refusing to participate in Roman morality and sort of living apart from that, there were things that they rejected that were made people kind of hate and fear them. But they were known and they were marked by this quality of love not just for their own family members, not even just for their own circle of people who shared their religion, but for outsiders too, that religion as well. That overflowing quality of love made this early group of people hated and feared as they were strangely compelling. And that, uh, you know, that nature is part of what gradually grew, drew more and more people to convert until it did totally transform the Roman Empire after Julian's death. They were drawn by this unique quality of love. So that's a subject that you, I'm sure you heard it as we read our, as Jeremy read our passages, but the subject we're going to focus on today in 1 John See, John comes back to this topic several times in kind of the way that he does. He sort of cycles around topics, which is why we do sort of pull a couple of texts out of the passage seemingly at at random. But he talks about it because the false teachers that were troubling the churches he's writing to, one of the things that they were doing is they were neglecting this basic Christian responsibility of love that most likely they belonged to kind of the pagan elite, and they were just sort of living those values, which was you sort of scorn and ignore uh, people who are poorer than you. And so they were neglecting that value of love. And so John has to write about it several times because he says it's not just part of the Christian life, it's vital to, it's essential to the Christian life just as much as the truth of who Jesus is. We talked about a few weeks back. And just as much as God's call to righteousness, to a life that's transformed into the image of Christ, that love is just as much a marker as you get Christianity as those other things are as well. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. And the first point that we're looking at is kind of that, the necessity of love, the necessity of love in the Christian life. See, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, John says, This is the message that you've heard from the beginning. 
that we should love one another. So a message, that's something. But in chapter 2, before that, he calls it a commandment to love one another. And the reason that he calls it a commandment is because that's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus calls it uh, when he talks about uh, the importance of love. So listen to this passage from the Gospel of John. Um, This is something that Jesus said to John and the other disciples. He said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another as he's loved them. Um, His group of disciples were about as diverse as you could get within the bounds of Judaism in that day. There was a tax collector who worked for the Roman Empire that was occupying the Jews. And there was a man who had previously been part of a almost terrorist movement, but a basically revolutionary uh, movement within Judaism that was trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. And then sort of everyone in between. And so Jesus says, you, my disciples, you could be as divided as it's possible for our people to be. But he says, I want you to be marked by, I want you to be known by your love for one another. That that's going to tell the world that there's something different about you. That there's something more real that unites you than the things that could divide you from one another. So that's, uh, with that in mind, uh, look at what John writes in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 of his letter. 1 John three fourteen and 15. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he says, how do we know that we pass from death to life? Well, one of the ways that we know, like we've talked about uh, the last two weeks, is we love the brothers. Is that we have love for our fellow Christians. And whoever does not love, whoever doesn't have that quality, he says they're still living in death. That they're still living outside fellowship with God, outside the kingdom of God. They still don't get it if they don't have love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're still missing it. He says something similar in chapter 4. If you look over at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So he says love is such an essential quality of God that we can say God is love. Not just God has love or God is loving, but God is love. Uh, Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York City who died about a month ago, Um, He wrote about a public dialogue he had with a teacher from Islam. And he said the teacher there could say that sort of under the understanding of Islam, God is loving, God is merciful and kind, but they couldn't say, they can't say God is love like Christians can. Part of that is because they believe that that sort of dishonors the, the holiness of God and the transcendence of God. And part of it is also that Only Christianity believes that God is both one, that there's one God, but that this one God has existed from eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relationship that we call the Trinity. And so that means that from eternity past, God hasn't been alone. 
that God has existed in a community of mutual love and glorification, that every time we see the relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity, that they are glorifying one another, that they are celebrating one another, that they are loving and enjoying one another. And so only the God of Christianity has been love from eternity past before there was a world. And even the creation of the world, you know, when God brought uh, things like us, you know, other things into existence, that wasn't because God was lonely and it wasn't because God needed anything because he doesn't need anything. Even the creation was an overflow of God's love of making a world and making people to share his goodness and to share his love with. And so we exist because of the love of God, because God is love. And so this is something that's unique to Christianity, and it's really different from, uh, you know, a a world that uh, is only explained or only exists according to the principles of atheistic materialism, which is a belief that things only exist because of natural physical processes. So that view of the universe, um, it's summarized well by Richard Dawkins, who's prominent in the new atheist movement that kind of crested a decade or so ago. And he describes it this way. He says, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That if that's your your view of how the world came to be, you can still be loving, uh, just like you can still be moral. And I think most of us feel like we should be, but there's no, there's nothing underpinning that. There's nothing that tells us we have to love. There's nothing that tells us we have to be kind. There's nothing that tells us we have to live for someone other than ourselves because there, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing underpinning the world that exists. But if the foundation of our existence is a God who is love, who made the world out of an overflow of that love, it completely changes things. And it's going to completely change the people who know him and the people who belong to him. That doesn't mean that everyone who claims to be a Christian will be perfectly loving uh, we all know that that's not the case. We, anyone who knows themselves knows that that's not the case. Um, you know, we live in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm from Mississippi and Birmingham, Alabama, and the civil rights era is still living memory for some people. Um, there were a lot of churchgoers who were on the wrong side of that struggle, who were not on the side of love, and we don't deny that. But even the resources for challenging those people who were on that wrong side came from within Christianity. So you look at the rhetoric from the civil rights era and the the rhetoric draws from Jesus who says, love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbor as yourself. It draws from the Old Testament prophets who said, let justice roll down like waters. Let there be uh, love instead of hatred for one another. It came from within the resources of this religion. There's a secular historian named Tom Holland. He's he's either an agnostic or an atheist. He's not a believer of any sort. Um, He wrote a book about the influence of Christianity on the West that's called Dominion. It's a really interesting read. And it kind of chronicles both failures of Christians and people who claimed Christianity, injustices that they perpetuated. But it also says kind of all the way through that the values that we hold dearest today in the West, the values of like the, the dignity of all people. Um, the fundamental equality of all folks before the law, you know, we would say before God. But he says those things aren't natural or neutral. They're not just sort of floating around in the world. They come from within Christianity. 
And without Christianity, you don't have a foundation for those values. And so even when people claiming Christianity failed to love, they failed to live up to those values, the people who corrected them and the movements that have corrected those, whether it was the ending of the slave trade or the ending of the Jim Crow era, they used the teachings of Christianity to correct those failures because that's where those things come from. The reality of a God who is love and who showed his love by setting aside his glory, becoming a human being and dying for the sins of even his enemies, that was such a a powerful story that it changed people's hearts. It changes people's hearts when we see it. If we know the God who is love, that's what John is saying here essentially, we will love like God. So that's the necessity of love. So that's our first point. To set up our next one, one man about 100 years ago, um, he wrote about how in his day people were saying, uh, now, we all know what love is. We don't need churchmen and books to tell us about it. We just, we just need to love people and we'll be okay. He said that's a little bit like saying, we don't need doctors and tests to tell us what health is. We all know what health is. We're just going to be healthy and then we'll all be okay. He says it doesn't work. You substitute the word and you realize that just saying the word doesn't make us have it. You have to define the word. And we need doctors, we need medicine, we need tests who can tell us what is healthy and what isn't healthy and who can help us get back to health when we lose it. In the same way, or you could phrase it, you know, as the, uh, the theological treatise from 1984 by the theologian of the 80s band Foreigner said, I want to know what love is. You have to define love. It's not just floating out there. We need to ask uh, the definition of love. What is it? See, because when I was a kid, uh, we had this plant fertilizer that somehow I ate. Don't ask me how or why I ate it, but I did. Somehow it found its way into my mouth, and I liked the taste of it. It was like sour and tangy and weird, and I, was, I liked it. Um, my parents could have said, now we love him, and it seems like that makes him happy, so let's just, let's just let him eat as much as he wants. You know, bag it up, send it for snack. They could have done that. They could have indulged that little desire of mine. Uh, and maybe it would have been okay. We don't know. Um, but odds are it would have been unhealthy for me to consume large amounts of plant fertilizer. And so it would have been unloving for my parents to let me indulge that desire. Kid me. So today, sometimes we try to define love as just benevolent tolerance. A sort of you do you, you find the thing that makes you happy, and my job is just to support and champion you in that. As long as you're not hurting anyone, you just kind of do your thing. That that's what love is. But anyone who has small kids um, or anyone who's watched a friend or a loved one making a decision that's wrecking their life knows that that's not, that, that's not a, an adequate definition of love that we can't just champion each other in whatever choices that we're making because we don't always make good or wise choices. That love requires more than just supporting people in whatever. So we have to define what love is, what counts. And thankfully, John does that. So let's look first at 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. He says this, by, w- by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So John points to the ultimate act of love in Christianity, of God the Son, Jesus, laying down his life for us. And he says, you want to know what love is? That's what it is. If there's a Christian definition of love, it's pursuing someone's good, even if it means giving up my own. It's pursuing someone's good, even if it means giving up my own. That's why he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You could paraphrase that in modern terms by saying, let us not love in text or meme, but in deed and truth. That love isn't a matter of speaking or posting. Love is a matter of doing. And so here, the first thing that John has in mind is that the real test of love is concrete deeds of service. That he specifically mentions material goods as part of what we're called to pursue. So he says, if we have material goods and we see a brother in need, that love obligates us to bear that burden with them and to send them relief, even if it means giving up something of our own. The love of Christ should move us to meet that need. That doesn't necessarily commit us to any specific kind of method or program of serving. So right now, in kind of the, the current culture where we've got, there's sort of red tribe cultural conservatism, and that just sort of has this ethic of libertarian selfishness. You know, of like, I'm free to do whatever I want. No one can obligate me to do anything to care for anyone else. You know, it's me and mine. Everyone else is caring for them and theirs, period, end of story. And sort of the blue tribe progressivism says, you know, if you're uh, not supporting these specific government programs and these specific laws, then you don't care about people and you just want them to die in the street. You know, both of those things are missing the mark. We're not obligated to kind of express this love in any specific way, but we are called to take up the material needs of others. So that could mean relief uh, as a word that's kind of described now, where we alleviate material needs through a gift or through a nonprofit like the food bank that we partner with. Uh, it could mean what's called development now, where in the words of an, uh, an old pastor of mine who grew up in deep poverty, we help disciple people out of poverty. That are things like our, our tutoring program or the things that we do give education and empowerment to help uh, grow people into greater, you know, kind of economic self-sufficiency. That that's part of loving people. Um, Love can be personal, like in one-on-one situations where I'm faced with an individual who has a need and I meet it. Love can also be, have a systemic uh, focus where I try to help make our laws or our systems more just so our whole society flourishes more freely. That's part of loving others. Love can be local, like here in Wilmington, where I serve people who have material needs here. Or it can be global, where I support you know, relief or development in other parts of the world. There's a lot of freedom in how we pursue love. There's a lot of opportunity there. And so we, I'm not even going to tell you specific ways because there's just so much that can be done. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of place to run there. But John says that whatever it is, however we go about it, pursuing the material needs of others is part of loving them, bearing those burdens. But it's not just their material needs. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here, John says this. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. So if you remember last week, a propitiation is just a payment that satisfies a cost. So if I wreck someone's car and I pay to fix it, that's a propitiation. So that's the $10 word in there. Um, But John says, how is the love of God made manifest? It's not in God sending us great jobs and vacation homes and a soaring economy. Uh, The love of God is made manifest in his sending his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That he might be the payment that forgives, that covers the cost of our sins. See, God showed his love for us by paying for our forgiveness and by bringing us into a relationship with him, by bringing us into his life. So that means that love isn't just about meeting someone's material needs and not caring about their spiritual ones. It means that loving people is just as much about meeting their spiritual needs, including that fundamental need of being reconciled to God, that broken fellowship. So this is vital because as important as Jesus's physical ministry was to him, you can see kind of over the course of his life, he did a lot of healing. He did a lot of ministries of mercy. He did a lot of things like that. But what drove him more than those things, what led him to abandon those ministries sometimes when it seems like they were taking off is what he called his need to go seek and save the lost. His ministry of proclaiming the kingdom and of seeing people reconciled to God was more fundamental to him even then his works of healing and mercy. And so that's what he said he came to do ultimately, to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. Or like we saw last week, he came to put an end to sin and destroy the works of evil. So for us, love has to include that dimension as well of pursuing someone's reconciliation to God, their freedom from sin that entangles us and takes us away from God. And they're finding fullness of joy in life with God. So it means, might mean worshiping together with someone so that we're speaking truth and grace into each other's lives and enjoying that life together. It also might mean warning and encouraging one another when we're straying into sin. So this is one way that the language of love is kind of getting twisted today, that love just means being nice to someone, sort of whatever their path is on. It would be kind of like my parents watching me eat fertilizer and saying, buddy, I'm so happy for you. You know, you keep going, doing your thing. So the loving thing for them was to take that away and to say, hey, this is probably going to kill you if you keep doing it and you need to stop. So people need to be reconciled to God and to find fulfillment in Christ, to find forgiveness through him. That isn't accomplished by us being a jerk. This doesn't give us license to be mean to people. Um, but it's also not accomplished by just being nice without ever sharing the truth. If our love doesn't ultimately point people toward the spiritual good of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we're missing something really essential because they're missing a a need that is more fundamental to people who are eternal beings, to people who have not just a physical life for a few decades, but an eternal life. We need more than anything more than food and water. We need to be reconciled to God through Christ. One Christian leader in India said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And so he said, that's what evangelism is. And so evangelism is not me doing something for me. Evangelism is me telling a friend or a loved one or a family member, hey, there's spiritual food over here. There's real spiritual life to be found here in Christ that 
I don't deserve, just like you don't deserve, but that I found by grace, and you can find too. And it includes the work of helping one another hold on to that hope through life, of being in community and accountability with others so that we're walking in Christ together. Sometimes that's easy, you know, worshiping and celebrating, rejoicing, giving thanks together, and love for one another and supporting each other feels really easy. Sometimes it feels really heavy. Like when someone is walking through grief, we had a a funeral a few weeks ago, and one of our community groups supported and helped the member who was kind of uh, faced by that. Um, They helped her through that time by providing meals, by caring for her and being with her, and they're still, I'm sure, grieving with her and helping her. Love can feel heavy. Love can also feel painful. When we're seeing someone make a decision that's wrecking their life and love requires us going after them and saying, hey, you need to turn back away from this and repent. Love can be all of those things. It can be easy. It can be heavy. It can hurt. But it's all part of our call. So that's the necessity of love. Why it's important to the Christian life. It's important because God is love. And if we know him, we're going to show that to others. And we've seen how John defines love, that I'm pursuing the material and the spiritual good of others, even if it means giving up my own. And if that were all, then we'd say, okay, that's what love is, and it's this burden that we have to carry. I feel a little less you know, jolly about it than I did when I came in, because um, it's got teeth to it. Um, but it would be a law that we had to do. But thankfully for Christians, it's not just a burden, and it's not just a law. We're going to close here by looking at the power of love. So we're going to look at what empowers us to be willing to pursue this life of love, to set aside our goods for the sake of others. So let's read 1 John 4, verses 10 through 12. John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So these verses show us that love doesn't begin with us and then get God's attention. It's not something that God has just commanded from on high and is sort of waiting to see how we're going to do at following his command. God doesn't start by saying, you love me first, and you love other people first, and then we'll see what love I might have for you. John says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, our relationship with God begins because it's created by God's love for us. It didn't start because we loved God. And it didn't start because we were these lovable beings that impressed God so much that he couldn't help kind of falling in love with us. We were God's enemies. I was God's enemy, hostile to everything that he stood for before I knew him. But in love, God came down into the world to rescue me from that unloveliness and to adopt me into his family, to give up his begotten son so that I could be adopted as his son so that we could become his sons and daughters. He earned the forgiveness for my sin. He paid to cover it. And he continues to forgive the fresh unloveliness that sort of wells up in me as I go, even as he helps me turn from it 
and work to starve it. So that's the context for verse 11, that if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It starts with God's love. And then in verse 12, he says that God's love being perfected in us is what leads to us learning to love one another more fruitfully. See, sometimes love feels easy. It feels like a joy to celebrate and serve someone else, and that's wonderful when it does. But especially when love uh, becomes a burden, or it becomes painful, or I can feel the sacrifice of it, or I just fail at it, that I find that I am not loving as I should be. When we're confronted by the demands of love and feel the cost, what do we lean on? What do we draw from for that? So John tells us here that we draw from the love that God has for us. That even my failures to love can lead me to see, man, I am more of a sinner than I thought. I am more selfish than I thought because when it came to it and I had this opportunity to love, I totally failed. I am way more in need of grace than I thought before this happened. And God knew that. God wasn't surprised by that. He saw it from eternity past, and he saw it when he adopted me as his son. And so my understanding, not just of my own failure, but of God's love grows the more that I see even my failures. And I can say, man, if my sin has me further down than I thought, how wonderful is the the love of God that brings me back up to him anyway? And the more that I reflect on that love, it becomes the cycle that transforms me from the inside out more and more and makes me better equipped and it makes me more able to love others and then to fail and repent and pick up and try again. That God's love created our relationship with the pa- in the past. God's love is sustaining me right now in the present. And God's love is going to continue and preserve me all the way on through my earthly future and into eternity with him. God has got me all the way because of the love that he's had for me through Christ, his son. So that can challenge us when we're trying to choose not to love, when we're failing on purpose and we need to repent. But it's also meant to inspire us to follow God's example. And if we've been reconciled to God, if we've been made alive to him by the death and resurrection of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who's living in us, then as the Apostle Paul wrote, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That God's love fills us so that we can turn around and fill the lives of others. When we're feeling the burden of love, when we need a strength from it, then we turn to the love of God because his strength is infinite and his grace is infinite. And that is what we lean on to help us walk in the life of love that Jesus has set for us.